everybody. Welcome to Inside the Album. It's the podcast where we take a classic album and talk about all of the stories about the songs and the writing and the recording of that album. And today our album is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. Ah, I'm excited. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, such a good album. And, you know, for me, I didn't listen, you know, I mean, when this came out, I was, I guess, 14, and I wasn't really into the Beatles at that point. So I I started listening to this album in, like, the early 80s, right? Like, 79, 80. And, but once I put it on, I couldn't take it off. So I just, it's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, and I was the opposite, you know, I think, like, some of the first albums I ever listened to, I, I know the White Album and Let It Be, what you know, they, I played them forever when I was a kid. I mean, yeah. young, because they were just the best. And this album's unbelievable. A lot of great stories behind this album. I look forward to discussing it. Oh, yeah. And hey, today, on Secla, go ahead, come on. <laughs> Today, Tommy, we have an advertiser, a sponsor, and it is the Game Show Guys. So, to be honest, the Game Show Guys are us. It's Tommy and me. But what we've done is we've kind of come together and created this uh, company called the Game Show Guys. And what we do is we come to you in person to do team building events through our amazing and fun live game shows. Our shows deliver entertainment, education, and enhanced collaboration skills. All of our content is completely customizable to whatever your needs are. So we can improve, we can provide educational content about improving collaboration, communication, discovering strengths and weaknesses, and a whole much more. So we have a great Jeopardy-style trivia game complete with individual buzzers. So get your buzzer finger ready. And then we also do some survivor challenge type style games that forces the team to work together to identify their strengths and weaknesses. And everybody really just has a great time. So if you're looking for team building activities, reach out to us at gameshowguys.com. Yes, and please remember it's Jeopardy like. <laughs> yes. <survival-like. laughs> right, right. And the questions, they're Jeopardy like, but they're not hard. So we're not right. asking about mythology and things like that. We make it very easy. So everybody has a lot of fun. Yes, please don't sue us. <laughs> please don't sue us. <laughs> All right. Our first sponsorship, and we're already owing money up. We're already in prison. <laughs> Hey, find those guys. Where are those game show guys? <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Sgt. Pepper's, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, legendary, legendary, legendary album. It, it, it did so much uh, in terms of changing music at the time. So we're going to dive in deep. I'm sure everybody knows the four Beatles. It's John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. They don't really need introductions. These guys are our icons. To say the least, yeah. Yeah, to say it right, exactly, yeah. to say the least. Icon's a good word. Yeah. So uh, this was the eighth studio album for the Beatles. And at the end of August 1966, the Beatles had permanently retired from touring. Mm. And, and they started to pursue pursue individual interests for the next three months. So during a return flight to London in November... 
Paul McCartney had the idea for a song involving an Edwardian military band. So, you know, they're British. If you want to research that, look it up. But basically, it's those Sgt. Pepper uniforms is that kind of military look that they were going for. Um, And so that was kind of the beginning of the Sgt. Pepper concept. And for this project, they continued a lot of technological experimentation that they had started on the previous album, which was Revolver. The good thing about Sgt. Pepper was that they didn't really have a deadline for completion. So they didn't have to have this record out. They were kind of now away from that, you know, the the four, four, you know, mop tops kind of thing and moving into where now they had, they were so popular that they really could, nobody could dictate to them what they were going to do. Sure. So the sessions for this began on the 24th of November in 1966, and the album was released in May, uh, on the 26th of May in 1967. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So this was this, and people said this was like kind of the soundtrack for the summer of love, you know, when it was all hippies and everything. So that was a short-lived thing people i don't know if people realize this or not but it was really like one year of hippies you know and then it kind of it started to die out towards the end of the 60s um but at the time there was a lot of a lot of really big influential uh bands that were were coming out with albums there was the debut album from the doors nice. we we had uh jimmy hendrix with are you experienced which hendrix was exploding at this time yeah uh, you had Jefferson Airplane with Surrealistic Pillow, oh, which was a legendary album, of course. Yep. Uh, Frank Sinatra had the album That's Life, which is a, a huge, huge hit for Frank Sinatra. And we also had the Turtles, Happy Together. And really? again, you know, Flo and Eddie and, you know, people sometimes crap on the Turtles, but they're, I oh. love them. They're so good. They're very poppy, of course, but... But it's such a sing-along, right? Oh, I'm a big fan of the Turtles. Yeah, yeah, they were awesome. So they were a lot cooler than anybody really thought. Yeah, yeah, and and it, so you got a quite a mix of things. Music is really changing. We're coming out of this, the early '60s, which is you know again the four mop top Beatles with "I Love You," yeah, 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 and things are starting to get more edgy, right? So yep. now they move into Revolver, which was you know still kind of tame but also a little bit experimental and now it's full-on uh crazy and right before this also pet sounds had come out by the beach boys the i think it was 66 mm. so that also had a lot of influence on this album as well because the beach boys and the beatles were kind of in competition at that time sure friendly competition yep yeah, yeah, they were they were friendly, and Paul actually played uh, Sergeant Pepper for Brian Wilson before it came out. So Brian got to hear the album, you know, uh, right before it was released. Wow, two of my favorite Beatles songs are on here, by the way, which is very cool. So I'll talk about. Oh that. yeah, yeah, I just love everything on this album except for one tune, and I'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably know what it is. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know. All right, all right. Well, get that. you're gonna find out. Yeah. So the well, the album, I like. <laughs> <laughs> it might be your favorite. Who knows? It might be my favorite. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this album was number one in the U.S. for 15 weeks. So you know, basically, what is that? Three months? Four, four months? months? Yeah. Four yeah. Months. yeah. Uh, it was number one uh, at at 
on many, many of the greatest rock album lists of all time for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it sold over 32 million copies, which is an insane number of records to sell. Any idea which album took it out after 15 weeks? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean... It would have to it, be a pretty good album. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to guess. <laughs> I think back then the record companies played with things anyway, just to, you know, plug and play. You know, oh, manipulate the, manipulate the charts a little bit. Oh, well, you, they'd have to because they, they want to get that number one album out there and they don't want one album to stay when they have 10 that they need to promote. Right. Record companies did a lot back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We always talk about payola and guys stopping in and going to the DJs to get a song played, and DJs made all their money that way. Yeah, and you know what they used to do? They used to stick little bags of cocaine in the record and hand it to the DJ. Oh, wow. (laughs) I don't know if you knew that. I I don't know if everybody was doing that, but it was happening. (laughs) To the DJ, not the DJ. Not this DJ. DJ, <laughs> callback. That's beautiful. Nobody knows what we're talking no about. One. No, one, no one cares. No one cares. All right. So the Beatles at this time, like I said before, you know, probably the most popular band in the world at this time, right? They were at the peak of, you know, every album they've had before this was a hit. There was no, they never missed, right? Every album was insanely popular. And they stopped touring, and it was basically because they couldn't hear themselves, you know? It was back in the day, and everybody's probably seen the pictures of them at Shea Stadium, you know, out on the field with the the speakers and stuff, and it wasn't like today. They didn't have these enormous rock stages with giant speakers and everything. It was them up there with a a bunch of speakers, some amps, and a mic, and it was, you couldn't hear anything because it was like a pop, it was a, you know, like a boy band type situation back then the girls are just screaming it's always my favorite thing about shea stadium that i always bring up is that what what do you call the things that aim back at the musicians so they could hear themselves yeah the monitors yeah they didn't have them yeah they didn't yeah. have monitors right they literally it's just played like by ear they couldn't even right. hear each other or where the drums were going. <laughs> exactly and after that like as the oh. 60s turned into the 70s they started putting monitors on the stage which are speakers that face the musicians yeah so you can and na- yeah. yeah nowadays a lot of musicians use in-ear monitors so you won't even see monitors on the stage anymore and these days bands use smaller amps they're not carrying those big stacks of marshals like they did in the 70s sure. so yeah everything's smaller and mic'd and run through the the board and it just sounds better they, you know they, so they're they controlling the sound when they yeah That's yes crazy that they got through a concert like that when you think about it well, and and the quality suffers because of that. So that's why they that's why they gave it up. They said it's just not worth it. It's it sounds like crap. Yeah, interesting. So in late 1966, the Beatles were looking at the Pet Sounds album by the Beach Boys as like the most significant record that's that's been released in their in their lifetimes. Brian Wilson had created it that album, the Pet Sounds album, in response to Rubber Soul. So he heard Rubber Soul, and what the Beatles were doing there was pretty experimental. And so Brian Wilson said, okay, I'm going to top that, and I'm going to go here with Pet Sounds. Yeah. 
So McCartney heard pet sounds and he listened to the harmonic structures, the choice of instruments, and said that these elements are what encouraged him to think that they could now outdo the Beach Boys and get further out than the Beach Boys had. They, He said, Paul said that they nicked a few ideas from the Beach Boys, but the one thing that they thought that the pet sounds lacked was this kind of avant-garde quality that he was trying to, he was trying to like press the limits and get that out there and, and do a little bit of weirder stuff, right? Wow. Um, and that was a thing back then. So it, it was... The, the hippie thing was very, there was also this very avant-garde artsy movement where people are pushing the boundaries, whether it's in the clothes they're wearing or wearing their hair super long. Everything wow. was about pushing boundaries, right? And so that's the state of mind that these guys are in. What an, what an interesting time in music because the Beatles were struggling to be the Beatles. Brian Wilson was struggling tremendous as a human being that he was just yeah. so laser focused on pet sounds. I think Pet Sounds actually is the one that broke him because if you've ever watched the documentary on it, it's unbelievable how much pressure he put him on himself. Yeah, yeah. They were really like, they, these guys were so focused on just going beyond their limits, you right. know, and, yeah. and that really, that can tax you. And it wow. really, it did tax Brian Wilson. It kind of sent him, like you're saying, it sent him yeah. kind of over the edge into, you know, not insanity, but he had, you know, had some issues. Well, the, the interesting part about it is if for both bands, they started, they started to not enjoy what they were doing. And that's, right. that's a tough time in life right there. I know the Beatles especially. Yeah, right. And this is, you, you start to see here, this is when you start to see the cracks in the Beatles too. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we get through the cool. songs a little bit. Um, but the other album that, that influenced McCartney was Freak Out by the Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa. Yeah. So yeah. Paul was in the studio saying, this is our freak out, you know, and he was trying to, that kind of made him want to record this, you know, concept album where the story goes through the whole record. Wow. So. That's that's crazy that you have a record that's influenced by the Beach Boys and Frank Zappa, like right. two diametrically opposed, like musically, you would never put them together. Right. They're so different. Right. But here is Paul McCartney taking this from these guys, this from these guys, putting it together and, and just making it something brand new and original. Yeah. You know, interesting. You, you... You could maybe mimic Zappa, but you could never be Zappa because yeah, he was right. creatively he was Frank Zappa, and there was no one like him. So it's interesting. Yeah, that was a guy who didn't he didn't follow, and there was no rules for Frank. So he did what he wanted, and sometimes it was it was crazy, and sometimes it was genius. You know? Oh uh, uh, yeah, or a mixture of both. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll take a look at the album cover here. It was designed. Uh, it was designed by uh, the pop artists, Peter Blake and Jan Hallworth. And so they uh, offered the idea if they that Sgt. Pepper, the band, had just played a concert in the park. The cover would be a photograph of the group after the concert with a crowd who had just watched the concert. And so they did that by using these cardboard cutouts. And the reason they did that was then it's a magical crowd of whoever they wanted. So they don't have to get people in the studio. Right. They could just get these cardboard cutouts of all these celebrities and famous people. Right. Today we would cut and paste. Yeah, exactly. Back yeah. then you had to actually shoot it. So, yeah, exactly. so they, 
So they did this uh, colorful collage, which you all can see, and in the the Beatles are in their costume as the band with the the silk and color, bright colored um, military outfits, standing with a group of life size cardboard cutouts of these famous people. Each of the Beatles has this heavy mustache, and that comes from George Harrison because he had grown one as a disguise during his visit to India, which was just previous to this. <laughs> So, you know, because the Beatles are so famous everywhere, he's trying to just kind of, he's trying to go to India and get into his whole spirituality thing. And so he gets this mustache as a disguise. The mustache has also reflected a growing influence of the hippie style trends. The military uniforms were just kind of that, you know, that British military concept that Paul had. So there was some controversy. EMI rejected John Lennon's suggestion for people who were going to be on the album cover, which included Adolf Hitler, Jesus oh. Christ, and also George Harrison wanted to have Mahatma Gandhi. So the record label is like, well, this is, you know, this is very, this is just getting too political for us. Right, right. And then uh, Paul, Paul was asked uh, why the Beatles didn't have Elvis Presley among them. And Paul said, well, Elvis is just bigger than everything. So, you know, it, he doesn't deserve to be put in this crowd. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I always think about this. You know, people get up in arms about Hitler. You mentioned Hitler or putting Hitler on. But when you think about it, he's quite an influential guy. Not in a good way. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely not in a good way. Yeah, but you know, my point being is that, you know, he was a big part of people's lives. Yeah. And yeah. this is this is only 20 years after World War II. Right. And it's you know, like so promoting him as a good guy, but right. you know, I see the people who they wanted on the cover and it kind of makes sense. So the studio personnel at the time of the recording uh they recalled that John Lennon never seemed so happy. So, you know, John was in his element here and and loving this. George Harrison said he had little interest in McCartney's concept of a fictitious group. And after his experiences in India, which again was just previous to this, his heart was still out in India. And he was kind of losing interest of being fab at that point, you know, the fab four and all that stuff. And then Ringo remembered being largely bored during the sessions. So he said the biggest memory he had of Sergeant Pepper's recording was that he learned to play chess. (laughs) There you go. That's the only memory. Yeah, yeah. I love Ringo. He's the best. Still the best. George Harrison also said that he had enjoyed the Rubber Soul and Revolver uh, recordings, and he disliked how the group's approach on Sgt. Pepper basically became an assembly process, whereby a lot of the time it ended up with just Paul playing the piano, Ringo keeping the tempo, and the rest of the guys weren't playing as much as a band. So George really wanted to get in there and do the thing as a band, but it was re- this is really where Paul is really, really starting to take control of the Beatles, yeah. and you start to see this this rift between George and Paul, which you know, album, yeah, yeah, which we've talked about on the on Abbey Road, and um, uh, did we do Let It Be? What was the other yeah, one? Did we? That's a good question. I forget. <laughs> That's okay. We're in our 60s now. We don't forget. We forget some stuff from time to time. You know, it was interesting when I watched Get Back, the documentary, 
Mm-hmm. Of all the things you think about the Beatles, the guy who was really the honorary one was George. He was ready. He was done. Yeah. yeah and we've yeah. talked about it before. I think he yeah. felt like a third-class citizen because Paul and John were so creative. Yeah. He couldn't wedge himself in there. You know, he didn't have the opportunities that those guys had because they were really the, they were writing from the beginning and George didn't start really until yeah. a little bit later on. He didn't come into his own, but you know, he yeah. was quite creative himself. Yeah. And so after this uh, is the White Album, and that really is where the Beatles start to kind of come apart. So this is the early stages of that. All right. So let's get into it. We got some awesome music coming up here. And we're going to start off with the opening track, which is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I mean, this one is real short. It's only two minutes. 2.02 is uh, Sgt. Pepper's. But Paul wrote this song and sang lead on it. And after recording it, that's when he had the idea of getting this whole concept album together. And so one of the things they want to do is have the songs run seamlessly through together through the record. So this one bl- goes right into... The next one is really like the introduction to this Billy Shears, the fictional character. Fictional um, guy. Yeah. The track's unorthodox stereo mix was typical of the album. So if you have the original version, I don't know if you'd hear this on the digital versions, that where the lead vocal is in the right speaker during the verses, but in the left during the chorus and the middle eight. So they're playing around, even though, you know, and remember this is 1967, so the technology is not what it is today. You know, so these kind of studio tricks, we'll call them, um, were unusual at the time because people are recording on, you know, four track machines and and limited, uh, there, there wasn't all the digital stuff, obviously. You know, it's interesting as I listen to this, and this is why I love doing this with you. You know, get something from me. You can even just hearing that first song, I, I can see the listener saying, wow, this is cool. This is great. But I could also see the band saying, blah, you know, like it's, it's so just manufactured. It was starting to manufacture music. What do you, you mean? Know? Instead of just going into the studio and jamming and recording. And- oh, yeah. It's more. It's definitely more thought out, more planned out. Yeah. It, it's it's a little less, hey, grab your guitar and let's rock. Right, let's it's much more 
thought about and planned. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very interesting. One, an interesting fact about this, and this is pretty well known, so probably a lot of people know this, but three days after this album came out, Jimi Hendrix opened up a, car, a concert with Sgt. Pepper as the first song, and Paul McCartney and George Harrison were both there and very impressed that Hendrix learned it so quickly. <laughs> and, and if you've never heard that version of the song, check it out because it's just amazing. It's completely different because it's just Jimmy with his distorted guitar, right. you know, rocking it out. And it just shows you how a song can go from, you know, you could take a song that has the the, the classical horns and the orchestra and all that stuff and then just slam it out with a, a distorted guitar. And it's, it's, it's different, but it's the same, right? Yeah, well, the guitar riff to open is, you know, Jimmy probably loved that. That's probably what caught his ear. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that fits really well with him. Yep. All right, so let's move into the next song, which, again, kind of, uh, you know, just it's there's no break in the songs. And that, that created a lot of issue for the radio stations back in the day because they either had to play them both together or just chop it off, which was right. a little weird. But the second song is uh, With a Little Help from My Friends. And it's not. Hold on. <laughs> what would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing. So obviously on this one, uh, this is Ringo singing here. Uh, this was written by Paul and John, but Ringo was uh, sang lead on it. And he's introduced as this character, Billy Shears. And they picked the name because it sounded good and played up. To the, they liked the idea that they were having characters, right? So they're really right. trying to create a scene here. It's almost, you know, kind of like a movie, really, right? It became a movie. Yes, that's a horrible movie, though. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible movie. With the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton. Yeah, dude, I, I gotta I'll be honest with you, I never saw it. I just noted it was there. Oh, you, you should watch like, it. No, I'm not watching it. You gotta watch it. It's awful. I've seen it. Yeah, thanks. I think my wife has the record of oh, the, I'm sure. the, the with the Bee Gees and Peter yeah. Frampton singing all the songs. And frolicking, a lot of frolicking in that. Yeah, movie. yeah. So the working title of this song was Bad Finger Boogie. 
And it's a name that John Lennon came up with because he had injured his finger. (laughs) So the Beatles ended up actually getting some use out of the name when they signed a group called the Ivies to their label Apple Records in 1968. And they renamed the group Badfinger. Badfinger, sure. That's where Badfinger comes from. Yeah. Why did, uh, you know, a second song on the album, why did it go to Ringo? It's a great question. I guess they felt that it fit him. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it was more about, yeah, I think, well, they wanted Ringo to sing something, right? So he usually has at least one singing song right. on an album. Yeah. Um, and they had created this character, and so they thought that the Sgt. Pepper's introducing the Billy Shears character was a good theme to go. So I think it was more about that than, than anything else. They fit the theme, yeah. Yeah. So the cheering at the beginning was actually taken from a Beatles concert at the Hollywood Bowl back in, I think, 1965 or six. Yeah. I'm not sure. That still um, exists, the Hollywood Bowl? It's a great question. I have no idea. That was a big venue back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Hollywood I've actually Bowl. never been to L.A., so I don't, I don't have much familiarity with the stuff out there. Um but this was uh, a number one hit on the UK chart three times. So the first time was by Joe Cocker in 1968, which a lot of people are familiar with that version. Again, a dramatically different performance of the song, right? They took a great song and 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 made it their own, dog. <laughs> so, so the Joe Cocker version is very good. Yeah, yeah, I love it. But yeah. again, it's another example of when the songs are this good, you can take them and do them and different you know different uh, genres or whatever different ways to perform the song no doubt if if the the song is good it doesn't matter it could be rap it could be dance it could be rock it could be classical you know a good song is a good song the other two times it was number one in the uk chart was uh by a band called wet 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 in 1988 1988 number one and Sam and Mark in 2004. I have no idea who Sam and Mark are. I do know Wet, 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 but I don't know Sam and Mark. I'm happy to say I don't know Wet, Wet, Wet. <laughs> so the first line was originally, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and throw tomatoes at me? <laughs> That's John at his best. Yeah. So Ringo objected because he didn't ah. want to sing it, being afraid that if they ever did it live, he'd be pelted with tomatoes. Well, it makes sense. It makes <laughs> Poor Ringo. Yeah. I don't want people throwing tomatoes at me, John. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know what? It, it's funny. Like I said, I learned so much by watching Get Back. Uh, and it really was. John was a master at coming up with a couple of lines and throwing something in until he discovered something better. But he'd always create the song and be singing about cauliflower or eggplant or broccoli. Right. Funny how well, he- and people do that pretty frequently. Like if they don't have lyrics, right. they mumble. They kind of have usually what happens when they're writing songs is people have like, I know the rhythm. I know kind of what, you know, what the words are supposed to sound like. So, you know, they throw in nonsense words until they figure out what. And again, if you watch that Get Back documentary, you can see that in action. They're right. going through songs that, you know, and they yeah. haven't hit the lyric yet, but they're saying blah, 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 or whatever, you know, and okay. then they, they finally great. it comes to them. 
All right, so let's move on. This is track number three. Uh, this one is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly a girl with kaleidoscope eyes Cellophane flowers of yellow and green Towering over your head Look for the girl with the sun in her eyes And she's gone People eat marshmallow pies Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers That grow so incredibly high Newspaper taxis appear on the shore Waiting to take you So this is an interesting one, and the uh, the Lucy who inspired the song is actually Lucy O'Donnell. She later became Lucy Vaden, and she was a classmate of John Lennon's son Julian when he was enrolled at the private Heath House School in Weybridge, Surrey. I have no idea where that is. That's <laughs> well, downtown Surrey. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was in a 1975 interview that John Lennon said that Julian came in one day with a picture about a school friend of his named Lucy, and he had sketched some stars with the sky and called it Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Awesome. So many people thought the song was about drugs, uh, and since the letters LSD were prominent in the title. And Lennon said, you know, he was known to, they were doing acid at this point. So uh, Lennon in 71, I think it was, told Rolling Stone that he swore he had no idea the song's initials spelt LSD. Right. Uh, so he said, I didn't even see it on the label. I didn't look at the initials. I don't look. I mean, I never play things backwards. I listened to it as it was made. It's like there will be things on this one if you fiddle about with it. I don't know what they are. Every time after that, I would look at the titles to see what it said, and usually they never said anything. So he's, you know, he's denying it. Um, but it wasn't just fans that didn't believe John. Paul McCartney said it was pretty obvious that this song was inspired by LSD. There you uh, go. So who knows? You know, I, I kind of, I mean, why would John make up a story like that? It seems like a very simple explanation, you know? 
It's a phrase, and that's what songwriters do. They catch a phrase, and they're like, "Ooh, that's a great. That sounds would sound great in a song." And a little deep to be dragging your kid in and his school pictures to you know be manufacturing it, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and especially his kid is little at this time, right? It's not like a you know, it's not like a grown up. Um, so the song was actually banned by the BBC because they thought it was drug references. Yeah. And uh, probably the maybe the greatest or the worst version of this song is recorded by uh, Bill Sh- William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk oh. on Star Trek. Oh. So if you haven't heard this, Google it because it's amazing. It's amazingly bad. He oh, does this. So bad, it's good. Yeah, he does this dramatic spoken word style, and <laughs> a boat, a Spock. Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh, shit. I, I mean to me that highlights like <laughs> how much William Shatner thinks of himself right oh, dude <laughs> he, he, he created that character and lived with it forever he did okay yeah I don't think it was a cat I think it was just him <laughs> I don't think it's a character, but it, it, so it's like you know maybe maybe one of it's probably one of the most popular rock songs of all time, and and this guy decides that he's going to go out and do it completely differently. And like we've talked about before, like with Joe Cocker and other people who have done these songs, they do good versions. This was an awful version of it. He has a whole album out of cover songs, William. Shaw. Yeah, fantastic. But I, I wanted to say, you know. Uh, I always, in my heart, I, I love John as a singer. You know, I, I, I've heard many people, including Chrissy Hine, talking about that people don't realize how well he breathes when he sings. And he's like just a true singer. His voice on this is incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Big yeah. He, I mean, John, I and the reason they work so well together, the Beatles, is that they're, they are so different. So... Yeah. You've got Paul, who's got this very poppy, you know, yeah. very nice, very pleasant, boom ba doop doop kind of sensibility to his writing and songs. And John is always edgy and abrasive. And, and you know, those things together, when they come together like that, it's it's phenomenal. The results are always ins- insanely good. Oh, no doubt. No doubt about it. All right, let's move on. We're going to listen to the next track. Uh, this is number four. This is called Getting Better. It's getting better, better, a little better. 
So this is, there's an interesting story here about the recording of this one. So during this, they were recording and they're doing the overdubs kind of towards the end of the song. And uh, John began to get very sick. So he suddenly got so scared when he was on the mic and he thought he felt ill and he was thought he was going to crack. He said, I must get some air because he was having a bad acid trip. <laughs> so these oh, guys wow. were doing LSD at the time, right? We, we know the Beatles were all experimenting. Um, so, so he's on acid, freaking out. So what does George Martin do? Takes him up to the roof of the studios for air. Do you take somebody on acid to a roof for air? Or do you put them on the ground, take them outside? Uh, Why do you take somebody on acid on the roof? That's crazy. They're, they're, yeah. they're going to jump off. Flying. <laughs> yeah. So actually, you don't know. I, I don't know if everybody knew they were tripping and like they were telling each other they were tripping, you know? That's true. And it was early days. So people probably weren't used to being around it, you know? Yeah, recognize uh, it, yeah. But uh, so John started walking towards the edge of the roof. George huh. Martin panicked, thinking that John would fall off or leap off or that would be it. Wow. So John saw that George Martin was looking at him funny. And that's when, uh, you know, Martin realized that he was on acid. Wow. And so John decided he couldn't do any more that night. So he sat in the booth and just watched the others record. Paul eventually took John home and stayed with him to keep him company and then wow. decided to drop acid with John. So it was two, that was Paul's first LSD experience. Wow. So that's crazy. So you see, how do you see somebody freaking out on acid and then go, okay, yeah, this is great. I'm going to take some acid. <laughs> bounce it out. Yeah, I'll bounce it out. Be like I'm weird. Yeah. So... Uh, at, at the end of the song, there's this uh, string sound, which is George Martin uh, hitting the strings inside of a piano. That's cool. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. I, I uh, love the words, it can't get no worse. Yeah, and that's that's John's contribution part. to the song. It's one of it's my his... favorite parts of that whole song. It's just, yeah. It's perfect. Well, like we were saying, I mean, McCartney always had these happy, floaty, kind of bouncy lyrics, and John comes in with the counters, and that counter, it just works perfectly. That, 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 to me, that's the lyric of the song. Yeah. Love and it. And John uh, revisited this song when he used the lyrics, every day in every way, it's getting better and better, for his 1980 track, Beautiful Boy. Uh, uh, this time, instead of taking the cynical side, he was affirming that life does get better. And it keeps getting better. Yeah. That so. was, I think he wrote that for Sean. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that was right before he died. So, or was yeah. killed and was murdered. Um, all right. So let's move on. We're going to go to track Great number, film. track number five. Still and that's my favorite yet. And you still, we still haven't gotten to my least favorite. Okay. I think we might be going <laughs> I, I think we might be on the same song. All right. Here's. We're together. We're a good work, good team. <laughs> We're here's fixing a hole. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it I'm feeling the cry. 
So I I love this song. I this is I, I just love the. It's not so much the lyrics. It's more the the kind of the melody line of that that what he's singing there. Yeah. And Paul. Tune. Yeah, Paul wrote this song after fixing the roof on his farm in Scotland. But it's not about the hole in his roof. Paul said it was about the hole in the road where the rain gets in. Wow. So uh, yeah, so he's up on the roof fixing it and sees a spot in the in the road that has a big hole and he's talking about that see who would have known that yeah Every, everybody thinks it's got to be a roof right right it's in a hole where the rain gets in Come right on. so it was rumored that this was about heroin again back to the drugs i don't know that the beatles were ever like into heroin though um uh, john was was he? Uh, but they said that, so, you know, they were saying, you know, getting a fix. And, yeah. but the Beatles said that had nothing to do with it. It was really just Paul talking about this pothole. Well, John wrote Cold Turkey about it. True. Right. His troubles, heroin. Okay. George Harrison became annoyed at the number of times that Paul re recorded the vocals for this song. He later said that he did almost nothing during the recording of the album, but sit around all day listening to Paul sing the words, fixing a hole all day. <laughs> George had had enough. Well, you know and I mean? you know, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a combination of Paul being a perfectionist and yeah. George just being frustrated, right? Yeah. And then George is like, come on already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So interesting when you lose that connective energy, you know, so Paul's just doing his thing. But, you know, George, you know, slowly but surely was just such a negative energy. Right. Right. Without even saying anything. But if you think about it, so this is over, right? So the Beatles 64, right, is when they really started getting popular, right, with first album. This is only three years. Right. And in three years, they've gone. They first of all, they've published a, an insane number of, of legendary songs in three years. But the band has gone from being, you know, four guys sweating it out in Germany and in clubs all day to to being worldwide legends. And and the their relationships are have completely are changing. People are getting frustrated. Uh, dude, you know, when you bring four people together and you know, everybody's got their own vision of what their life's going to be like. Yeah, it's, that's the challenging part is for all. And we talk about it. You know, we talk about team building, right? You know, right. We get everybody to have to uh, uh, while they're together, have the same vision. It's right. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, let's go to She's Leaving Home. This is track number six. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins 
Silently closing their bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more She goes downstairs to the kitchen Clutching her handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside, she is free. She. We gave her most of our lives. Is leaving. Sacrificed most of our lives. Oh. We gave her everything money could buy. She's So this is uh, it's first of all it's gorgeous. The Brilliant. the music is is just so beautiful. Yep. The song is based on a newspaper story Paul McCartney read about a runaway girl. Yeah, that's what on, I heard. Yeah, it was in the London Daily Mail's uh, the headline read uh, A-level girl dumps car and vanishes. That girl was 17-year-old Melanie Coe who had run away from home leaving everything behind. And for her father was quoted as saying, I cannot imagine why she should run away. She has everything here. So, you know, that that's the inspiration is this story in the newspaper. You know, these guys are so talented that, uh, you know, it's an average story in an average newspaper. Stuff like this happens all the time. And they pull it out and create this gorgeous song with it. Brilliant song. The lyrics, the, uh, the vocals, tremendous, tremendous. The interesting thing is that no Beatles played instruments on this. So it's all the orchestra. John and Paul's uh, vocals were double tracked to make it sound like a quartet. And then the sessions music, uh, session musicians played the strings. And it's also the first female to play on a Beatles album. It was Sheila Bromberg who played harp. Wow. You know what I was thinking? I'll just throw it out there because I... Uh... I was thinking you could slowly start to feel in my mind. I was thinking how Paul started to realize he could do this on his own. I don't know what makes me think that. But yeah. You just said, I didn't realize that the Beatles didn't even play on it musically. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that either. I just uh, yeah. found that in the research. Um, yeah. You could see that. You could say that. I mean, this is definitely, this is where Paul really has taken charge of the band. I think, you know, and that I mean, he's always been a great songwriter, but he, he here's again where they're they're starting to peak and coming up, you know, again taking an average story and turning it into this gorgeous piece of, piece of music. Fantastic, yeah. So Paul, uh, he used his falsetto sparingly with the Beatles, uh, but on this song he goes up very high in in that contrasting part where where she's leaving home as John sings a part of the girl's parents. Yeah. You know, we gave her most of our lives, so. Just interesting uh, how they how they did that and played off. And again, it really c comes back to like you were saying, Paul's songwriting expertise is is peaking. You know, it's it's just phenomenal here. Yeah, very good. All right, so let's take a listen to number seven. This one is being for the benefit of Mister Kite. Show tonight on Tram 
scene Over men and horses, hoops and garters Lastly through a hogshead of real fire In this way, Mr. K will challenge the world The celebrated Mr. K performs his feet on Saturday at Bishop's Gate The Hendersons will dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring. Don't be late. Let us K and H assure the public their production will be second to none. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the waltz. So this song is—it's interesting how this came about. Uh, first of all, they were. Um, they had released Strawberry Fields Forever as a single and did a video for it. And so while they were filming that video, John and Apple Records employee T Tony Bramwell went into an antique shop close to the hotel, just kind of walking around, right, to waste some time. And so the, Tony said that they wandered in and John spotted this framed Victorian circus poster and bought it. And John said, Mr. Kite was a straight lift. He had all the words were on the poster, basically. So all this stuff that he's singing in the song was on this circus poster that they got in this antique shop. Now, uh, this isn't one of your least favorite songs, is it? No, it's not. Because Is this your favorite? It's one, I have two on this album. That's okay. one. Okay, one I like this one. And I had the pleasure last summer, McCartney did this live in concert. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did. It freaked wow. me out. I, I looked at Cheryl. I was like, "Oh my god!" Because that's John singing, though. I know. Well, he does. He does tributes to all of them during his shows. He yeah. Them throughout. Oh, so he does it, and it does it, and says, "Hey, this is John's yeah. song." Okay. And he does. Uh, he does something, and tributes it to George. You know. Oh, cool. Oh yeah, very cool. Yeah, so the carnival sounds came from recordings of old steam organs that could be heard at, like, country fairs and amusement parks. Sure. George Martin had them on tape, but he wanted them to sound chaotic to stimulate the carnival experience, or to yeah. simulate it, stimulate, simulate the carnival experience. So he had the engineer chop up all the tape, and this is, you know, again, before digital, so everything's on tape, and you wow, cut it, yeah. and, and you tape it together, and that's how you used to do recordings. And uh, so he had the engineer chop up all the tapes of the, of the organs, and then splice them back together in random order. So it created this loop, that was augmented by various organs played in the studio to bring that kind of chaos and the sound of that circus. So it's all that you don't really hear the, the choppy part, you know, you hear the part oh. that they're playing, yeah. but it builds that atmosphere, the background that you'd never notice, but it's there, you know, it's so cool. Great, great tune. You know, I don't know what the BBC was like back then, but you know, obviously, People were different, but again, the BBC banned this song. I don't know if you're going to discuss that because Henry the Horse, uh, they felt was references to heroin again. So yeah, into every but, album back then. Yeah, what kind of a reference anti God? Or right. Well, it was. It's 1967, and everybody's doing drugs, right? So right. it's everybody's smoking pot people are doing acid constantly so this wow. is the scourge against the middle class right and so 
you're in a position where the kids are all growing their hair along. They're wearing clothes that don't look like anything that your father wants you wearing. They're doing these drugs. So it it was a societal thing. And the BBC is saying, look, we're not going to promote this. So every time there's a hint of it, they're like, you know, we're going to we're going to get rid of that. My establishment. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. You know, anything that was anti-establishment got knocked down back. It was quite the battle. It really was. You know, yeah, kids trying to be kids, kids trying to be themselves, people trying to be themselves. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, being different from the parents. And you just have to, you know, anybody who has kids knows there's gonna, always going to be a little bit of that rebellion. You just got to kind of keep an eye on it, let them give them enough rope, but, you know, try to maintain it so they're safe. Yeah. So George Harrison and Ringo both played harmonica on this song. Uh, along with a couple of other people. And uh, the interesting thing about this is uh, Paul was asked uh, one time what his favorite bass line to play is. And at the time, he said, at the moment, it's being for the benefit of Mr. Kite because it's challenging. So that's wow. interesting. Yeah, Maybe that's why he played it in concert. Who knows? Probably, yeah. It must be a favorite of his, right? Yep. Yep. Great tune. All right, so here we come to Don's least favorite song on the album. <laughs> Do you know what's next? Do you remember? No. It's Within You, Without You. Uh, it's George Harrison's Indian. Yeah. 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 Indian influence all the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I mean, it's okay as a song. To me, it's the sitar is just, for me, it's too much. This was the whole experience. Yeah. This what, see, this is where he was button heads because now he was like a completely different guy, you know, and, and throwing right. in what he wanted. Right. And it's, yeah. you know, it comes, so it's this balance between they're, they're trying to break, break boundaries, right? right? But then there's, this is super weird yeah. compared to what they're doing, but oh, they sure. included it, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. So. I'd like to get some more information on that. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's take a listen. Oh, 
This one, George, is the only person to play on it. The song is about the answers, how the answers are inside of us. So we have to look within to find them. We can go out to the mountaintop, mountaintop searching for our truths, but that won't do any good because we're not searching within ourselves. So it's a good message. You know, it's a reminder of our mortality, our place in the universe. Um, and this, the last line is life flows on within you and without you. So it's definitely, you know, it's that Indian spirituality thing, which is good. But it, for me, I just, I'm not a fan of the, the, the Indian music, the sitar, the weird rhythms that they do. Um, I don't know if I'm, maybe I'm just not smart enough to, to deal, like to be able to process it because yeah. they they do some weird rhythms. So most music is, uh, Western music anyway, you know, rock music, what we're used to, is either 4-4. Four, four. So you have one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Or it might be 3-4 where you have one, two, three, pause. One, two, three, pause. You know, those are typical Western music rhythms. This is in 5-4. So now it's one, two, three, four. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, you know, so, but it's in that space of four, you have five beats. So when you get into these different rhythms and things like that, it gets a lot more complex for me. I don't like it, but you know, that's, that's um, me. What what I did was while we were listening, I pulled the lyrics up and uh, the lyrics are amazing. Yeah. The lyrics are great. And when I when I saw the lyrics, and, you know, I, maybe this was the time where George was starting to find himself and what was important to him. So oh, definitely. Got you the inner being. Right. A lot of the stuff on all things must pass. Uh, the lyrics are kind of the same about everything is yes. self-growth, self-importance. Right, right. You know, and so you can see he kind of took the sitar out when he started to create this new music. And then he got, right, he put it more, that message into more of a rock style. The message stayed the yeah. same. Yeah. So. And it would be interesting. I've never heard a cover of this song, but I wonder if there are any covers out there in a different style, like a more rock style or even a country or or something with these lyrics. It would be interesting to hear that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that because it would be very cool because, like I said, the lyrics... Uh, if you listen as it was playing, the music takes you over, and you're like, "But when you when I was watching the lyrics, yeah, it's a little, it's just, it distracts you a little bit from the lyrics, yeah. right? Yeah, you have to really listen. Yeah, yeah. So he originally, I don't know how many people were actually ready for that? Well, that, yeah, that's the uh, well, that's the other thing. Like everything on this record is so new, right? At the time this stuff hadn't really been done. So there was no concept albums. There was no, you know, flow from one song to the next. It was, you had your 10 songs, your eight songs, and that was it. And you were either tripping or smoking or doing something when you put that. Right. And that, this feels a little too stony for, I mean, that's the other thing too. It feels like very, like it's a very druggy kind of sound. Um, But great stuff though. Yeah, so George actually wrote this as a 30-minute piece that he trimmed down for the album. 
Thank you, George. Yeah, so it was very complicated. And like, you know, they were saying, well, it was very unusual at the time because only like jazz people like Dave Brubeck and things like that were playing outside of like a 4-4 or 3-4 rhythm. And so, you know, in Indian music, there are 108 different rhythm cycles. So they play things in, in like weird stuff like seven and a half instead you know so it's it's very very complicated and for me it's just you know personally it's just for me it's a little a little too much but you know i appreciate it no, i got you yeah all right so let's move on to something a little more don friendly <laughs> uh this one is track number nine on the record and it is when i'm 64 So this one is something that Paul wrote when he was 15. Yeah. The music for it, at least. Yep, yep. So they used to play it back when they were the Quarrymen, and he uh, later, Paul later put the lyrics on it in honor of his father's 64th birthday. Wow. I'm 64. Well, there you go. (laughs) My wife, she said no. She said no. Uh, that's sad yeah well you know <laughs> quite the exhibit. yeah so this is a favorite of the beatles in their early club shows where they were required to play for hours so when their amps overheated they would sing this around the piano oh cool could you imagine that that's you had to great. stop because your amp overheated yeah all <laughs> tubes right we always talked about the tubes yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. today the technology is a lot better. The tube amps don't overheat, really. But oh, I got you. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Again, you know, a little Paul McCartney ditty. It's just a little pop, little poppy, bouncy, little fun song. And not only that, it sounds like a, a completely different McCartney voice. You know. Yeah, yeah. His voice is a little bit elevated there, right? He's up a little bit higher, I think, yep, than normal. Must- must have did it after they tuned it or whatever, you know, in, in the editing. Yeah. Interesting, though. Big hit, big song, still played to this day. Yep, pretty popular. Yeah. All right, let's move on to number 10. This is Lovely Rita. Meet a maid, nothing can come between 
So the interesting thing to me about this, that little honky tonk piano bit that we just heard there, yeah, that's actually George Martin playing. Oh wow! Yeah, well done. So, George. yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Um, yeah. Paul wrote this as if he fell for a meter maid while she was taking his plate number. So he said he was bopping about on the piano in Liverpool when somebody told me, told him in America that they call parking meter women meter maids. Yeah. And he he thought that was great, and it yeah. was uh, went from uh, Rita Meter Maid then to Lovely Rita Meter Maid. It's a great tune. Yeah, and they also uh, they also played combs and paper to make uh, kind of odd background noises. So, did you ever take a a comb and you put a piece of like tissue paper over it and hum? It's like a little Dude. kazoo. Not in 50 years, but you just reminded me that we used to do that. I remember it. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Wow. So, br yeah, yeah, it gives that little zzz. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys told uh, a magazine that this was his favorite Paul McCartney song. He uh, recalled that uh, Paul came by to visit him in 1967, gave him a sneak uh, preview of the record, and lovely Rita made him laugh uh, his head off. He said he loves the way it comes floating in. The bass line is great and the lyrics are kind of funny too. So, you know, again, you got two genius musicians, Paul McCartney and, and um, uh, Brian Wilson. And, you know, just respect for each other and loving what each other are doing. Very, very interesting. You know, these songs that we know and love, you know, um, it's a different time. It's a different time. You know, I you, you wonder if a poppy song could ever be played today. Like, Ooh, sorry. There you go. It's my answer. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, wait. No, it's, oh, it's a great song, too. My bad. Sorry about that. You know, these are uh, very poppy songs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and yeah, when you say it's a different time, yeah, it's, a, it's totally this... You know, obviously, 1967 is now 2023. This is the past, but it's still just amazing, amazing lyrics and melodies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to track number 11. And this one is Good Morning. To save his life, call his wife in Nothing to say, but what a day How's your boy been? Nothing to do, it's up to you I've got nothing to say, but it's okay Good morning, good morning, good morning yeah. Going to work, don't wanna go Feeling low down Heading for home, you start to roam Then you're in town Everybody knows there's nothing doing Everything is closed, it's like a ruin Everyone you see is half asleep And you're on your own, you're in the street After a while, you start to smile So this one is John John wrote this and is singing on it And uh, John used to write uh, Watch a Lot of TV and he wrote this after hearing Good Morning, Good Morning in an ad for cornflakes. And that's why you get the uh, the rooster. 
The rooster, yeah. Probably right. Kellogg's. Isn't that the Kellogg cornflake thing? Is the rooster? I don't know if it still is, but yeah. And I don't know in England if maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So this is interesting. So you hear there's a lot of animal sounds in the background. So they dub these in from a, a sound effects record. But this is really crazy. The sounds of the animals were arranged in the order of creatures capable of eating the one before. Oh, wow. So I got you. <laughs> so if you listen to them, the, the, the one that comes last could eat all the other animals. And that, that was John's uh, idea. I love that. See, th that's the fun stuff of creativity, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'd never know. That's a great, that's a great thing right there. So when John Lennon was asked about this song, and you know, John could be a little kind of a dick sometimes, right? He, I think he had that kind of edge to him where he could that's like piss you off. Yep. But he said, somebody asked about this song. He said, it's a throwaway. It's a piece of garbage. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's you know crazy. What? That's you know, crazy to me. Yeah, it's crazy to you. But like you said, when we go through their catalog, how many songs do they have? Yeah. It, 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 to them, it's a throwaway. Right? Right. Right. I, I, I get it. And you know what? And... Uh, as I always say, one of the sad parts of making music back in the day, sad yet good, was you had mm -hmm. to create an album. You had to create an album. There was no other way around it. So many artists, I would say, threw in a throwaway song to fill the album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was very common. I just don't believe, I just don't, I disagree that that's... You like the song, that's why. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great song and there, there's no reason to, you know downgrade or denigrate it like that <laughs> well at least he wrote it right so, yeah right i mean he wrote it so he can say whatever yeah, he wants yeah. but i mean if it was mccartney I so just, it's a yeah song. right that would be a little different, a little different. <laughs> i got you we'd have to ask george yeah oh george no don't ask george george probably didn't even play on it yeah I, who knows i don't know yeah all right so let's get on to track number 12 this is sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band reprise So again, this is a super short one. This is only 119. It's a, it's just a little, you know, and reprises are generally a sh much shorter version of the original song, but modified in some way. But you guessed it. It's my favorite song on the album. I love it. I it's I love it too. Yeah, that's uh, a good one. I, wish, I always wish because the guitar work is just so fun. Yeah, yeah. It's much more rocky than the, than the first, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first, the beginning of the first is so killer. But yeah. this whole song is like rocking. You know? It I takes was, it to another level, right? It yeah, changes so it. Yeah. So, so creative. And, you know, it's so it's a concept album. So they bookend it almost, right? There's yeah. another song after this, which we'll talk about next. But yeah. um, 
on this, everybody's singing. So it's John, Paul, and George all sharing lead vocals. They're it. They're with the rock guitars. They got a little distortion going. Nice. It, you know, it's a whole whole different kind of rock and roll Beatles vibe. Always my favorite. Yeah, such a good one. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the album closer, which is, you know, some people will say it's the the greatest Beatles song of all time. Uh, it's definitely up there. Uh, it's a combination of Paul and and John here. And let's take a listen. It's a day in the life. So I want to stop this. I want to talk about different parts of this song. So, uh, you know, the beginning is John doing that thing. It sounds yep. great. I love the acoustic guitar at the beginning. I love, yep. you know, the rhythm of it. This They used a 41-piece orchestra here. And when you hear that, that crescendo, uh, Paul's directing the the orchestra basically you know and told them to start with the lowest note of their instruments and then gradually play to get to the highest yeah so and then we go into this part and we'll jump back into it in a second here where it's the paul section of the song so let's restart it here there's and a take a listen songs in here, yeah was, sorry go ahead no, there's a few different songs in here all together comes as one Right, exactly. So you can't let's just listen to the beginning of this song and know what's going to happen. Yeah, it turns it turns so many different ways. So yep. let's yep. take a listen. Here's the end of the crescendo into the Paul part.
It's definitely Paul McCartney here, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, so it goes back to this John part again, right? Yeah. And what I want to move on to next, and that's, you know, I, I think everybody's probably heard this song before, but uh, what I want to get to now is the very end, and then we'll we'll talk about uh, that. Go ahead. Just... And so this is left on for like 40 seconds. Okay, so this this huge crescendo, you come into this. At the end part, what they did was, um, so that final chord was produced by Orf, all four Beatles and George Martin banging on three different pia pianos simultaneously. Wow. As the sound diminishes... The engineer boosted the faders, and so that last note is 42 seconds long. Wow. And, yeah, and if you listen, like, really closely enough, you can hear the studio air conditioners at the very end because the faders were, everything was pushed up max so they could keep it, keep the sound because it's going away, it's going down, 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 but they still want to hear it, so they raise the volumes up, wow, that's and then cool. you hear the stuff in the studio. Wow, that's amazing! What a great crazy, film. so yeah, so so good. Yeah, I was hearing. You know what I heard when I was hearing that? You know that John with the ah, John used a lot of that ah in his later music. Yeah, he, he used that as a fill a lot. You know, in his later albums, interesting to hear and see. Yeah, definitely. So they recorded this uh, song in three sessions. The first was the basic track. Then they did the orchestra. And then that last note was dubbed in at the end. Wow. And again, the, the story is, you know, taken from the newspaper. So John read in the Daily Mail newspaper uh, about Guinness heir Tara Brown dying when he uh, smashed his Lotus into a parked van. Jeez. Wow. And then uh, there was another story that they were talking about the Blackburn Road surveyor had counted 4,000 holes in the roads, and he commented that the volume of material needed to fill them was enough to fill the Albert Hall. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, 
Yeah, that, that's uh, you know, just a great title. Now that you think a day in the life. Yeah, right? Yeah, very good. Very good. And again, there's another drug reference. I'd love to turn you on. Yeah. Um, and the BBC banned it, of course, because another section they assumed was about marijuana. Uh, it was the found my ways up, found my way upstairs and had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream. So, you know, quite honestly, this stuff is all, I, it's gotta be drug references, right? It doesn't make sense that it wasn't. It fits in and, you know, back then you couldn't say it was, now they could if they wanted to. Yeah. Paul said that, uh, the song's origin was John had started the song, had the first verse and he said, this often happened. One of us would have a little bit of an idea. Instead of sitting down and sweating it out, we'd bring it to the other guy, have him listen to it, and then kind of finish it together because you could yep. kind of ping pong back and forth. Perfect. Yeah. So he had the first verse. I read the news today, oh boy. And we sat in, in Paul's music room in London and just started playing around with it. Got a second verse. Then we got to going, we knew what was going to lead into the middle. And then we knew that they wanted to be a little bit edgy where they could go, I'd love to turn you on. And they knew that that would have an impact. Yeah, it's what I was saying about the fact that you could hear two different songs or two songs or multiple songs in this. Yeah. Right? It's five minutes and 34 seconds. Right. But it comes together so nicely. Yeah, I, I get it. But if it really, it's two songs that they brought, they combined. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love it. So the, uh, this being the last song on the album, the Beatles found an interesting way to close it out. After the final note, uh, George Martin, Len John Lennon had George Martin dub in a super high-pitched tone, which humans can't hear, but it drives dogs crazy. Thanks, John. <laughs> so it was followed by a loop of incomprehensible studio noise along with a voice saying something like never could see any other way they spliced it all together and they put it there on vinyl copies so that it would go all the way to that run out groove on the record you know how when the record yeah right. record ends it goes junk 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 well they put this stuff in that space wow. and they wanted people to think like something went horribly wrong with the record when the when it got to that point <laughs> Just messing with your head. Yeah, so much fun. Ah, good stuff, man. All man. right. So that's Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Interesting. You know, interesting to go through the album. It really was. You know, all these songs are, you know, been in our lives forever. Yeah. Truly so have. It's, it's a great one. Great one. All so right, that's John, Inside boy. the Album. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Hit that like button, smash that subscribe button, share it, do the things, press the buttons. Before we leave, can I uh, shout out to Indonesia? Sure. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good day. See you later. Bye.